Would you please take your Bibles and turn in God's holy and pure and powerful and perfect word to Acts chapter 2. Having spent 17 years of my short life here, some of my greatest spiritual growth and the raising of our family here, it's really good to be back after 12 years, a little over 600 Sundays since I think I last worshipped here with many of you. For those of you who don't know who I am, you're fortunate. <laughs> My name is Rob Rexilius. I pastor and shepherd five days a week and preach one sermon a week at First Street Bible Church. God has graced me with my wife Beth of 42 years and five children, ages 39 down to 23 at this point, and 15 grandchildren. From 1994 to 97, I was on staff here as a second pastor when the church was young. Got here just a little bit before Mike Hertzler, if that gives you some time reference. 2007 to 2010, I was an elder here. And from 2008 to 2010, I was also on pastoral staff here. And then, in early 2010, was sent by the elders here to rejuvenating First German Congregational Church at First and F Street. And it's been a sweet joy to watch what God has done there and uh, appreciate all that Faith Bible has done in helping toward that end. So I bring you greetings from First Street. We love partnering with you in the coalition uh, where we do a number of things together. And we are praying for you as a church as you go through both a grieving process as well as a searching process, praying that God will provide a man who will care for your souls by discipling and making disciples of each of you, who will preach you faithfully God's word, accurately, passionately, purely, and powerfully and someone who will humbly lead you and make it all about God and not him. So the topic I've been asked to preach on is devoted to worship, which comes out of Acts 2. It's one of the main traits of the first church, perhaps where it was purest in its form as it started under the apostles. And Ron Stolle started us last week. Thank you, Ron. Uh, reminding us of the important centrality of the Word and the teaching of the Word to a church and to the body. Um, I actually am going out of order. Next would be fellowship, but this was the Sunday that worked best in our schedule. Uh, so as you can kind of see on the slide, I think, oh boy, that's a lot of... I'm not used to seeing all that information. All right, that's what it looks like. <clears throat> and I will just say very quickly, there's quite a few slides, mostly because I'm a visual learner, and if you don't have much to say, you should at least have a slideshow. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I will gladly email you any of these that you might ask or desire. In other words, I don't want them to be a distraction from our walking through the Word this morning. If you're 
obsessed about getting every word of a particular verse or quote or whatever it might be, uh, just email me at rob at firststreetbible.com and I'll be glad to send these to you and this morning you can just oral, uh, auditorily and visually take in God's word. So what does it mean to be devoted to worship or the wording we see in Acts 2, to praise God day by day, both publicly and privately, because the awe of God has so struck the souls of his people. It seems we have to understand what worship is and where we'll spend considerable time today, what devotion to worship might look like in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. And we'll do that by looking at a number of New Testament pa pa passages that I think will help us understand these concepts in Acts 2 better. So for the definition of worship, my leaning is to go to William Temple's definition that I came across a number of years ago that I, is complex looking and sounding, but is incredible in its richness. It highlights the holiness of God, the truth of God, the beauty of God, the love of God, and the purpose of God. And those things touching, quickening, feeding, purging, opening, devoting our conscience, our mind, our imagination, our heart, and our will. And if that's the best thought some of you walk away with today, I'm thrilled. There's much good, rich truths there. But as I considered various New Testament passages, particularly about worship, I saw seven themes emerging that seem to be significant aspects of what God emphasizes to us about worshiping Him. So they'll be our talking points this morning. Let me give you all seven up front and so you can see fully where we're going and worry about if we're ever going to get to the end of it as the clock keeps ticking and we'll try to land the plane at some point having walked through these beholding believing bowing blessing being probably my weakest b word belonging and bewaring a made-up word <laughs> by beholding to see God and be so profoundly impacted by his worth. That's awe. Believing. To believe truths about him from his word with tremendous faith, deep, great faith, and trust it and live by it. That's faith. To bow, surrender oneself, and submit to pay the homage that is rightly due to such a superior being. That's humility. To bless, even as we sang in a couple of songs to this morning. To come to honor and exalt and give to, rather than just primarily to receive. I might put that under praise. Be, and by that I mean to be entirely, whole life, wholeheartedly devoted to God. Belong, that's where we all come in together, why we're here this morning to treasure the worship of God in corporate ways, in togetherness, in community. And then a few words about beware of the temptations and the easy ways that we worship 
other things with worship that belongs rightly only to God. A couple other quick notes, because I can't ever make it simple. Three quick thoughts. Every human is a worshiper. We all worship. No one doesn't. In fact, in some way, there's never a moment when we're not. Every hour of every day of our entire lives, we are worshiping. We'll think more about some of those possibilities, but G.K. Chesterton is good here. When we cease to worship God, or me, whenever adding, whenever we aren't actively worshiping him, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. Secondly, it's helpful to realize, or perhaps to think about it this way, that worship is not just a call to an action, but a call to a direction or a focus of one's thoughts, heart, and life. John MacArthur, what marks a believer from an unbeliever is the object of our worship or where our worship is being directed. So don't wonder necessarily even this morning whether you are worshiping. Wonder, what is your worship aimed at? Where are you giving your worship? And then third, beyond well-known synonyms such as praise, exalt, and glorify, worshiping God involves realizing the infinite worth of god god the father god the son and the gospel within him and this god the spirit and to value and treasure that far above everything else in this world another angle on defining worship to see glory by that greatness beauty power in something whatever that may be and then to give assign acknowledge attribute glory to it so to see glory and then to attribute glory toward that glory by giving our focus our time our strength and energy our money and maybe most significantly our affection so with that basic introduction Let's roll into this and ask God to help us explore the depths of what it means to be devoted to worship. Please join me. Oh Lord, how full of glory you are. Indescribable, inconceivable, inexpressible glory. Always, we acknowledge that one of our greatest faults and weaknesses and sins and losses is that we don't see you rightly we don't see nearly the glory that we should not because it's not there but because we aren't looking we aren't asking you to show it to us we aren't desiring it like we should so we don't worship you nearly as we should or nearly as you deserve forgive us And now, Lord, would you be so kind, so gracious, so merciful to us to help us be still and behold you and understand more of your heart for us to worship you. We ask in your name. 
and for resulting glory to be given to your name. Amen. So, number one of our B's is to behold. And we already have been, as we noted, singing about this. It's a very common word throughout the scripture. It's not only the idea of seeing God in a spiritual way, emphasizing that we can see him in a sort of way through the human mind or through our imagination, but this is a spiritual perception that is given by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, emphasized to us last week, to discover and learn by studying, inspecting, and giving close attention to. And not just to see it, but to be captivated by it so that we cannot stop looking at it, going to it, enjoying it, and soaking in its glory. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on who you ask, our whole business in this life is to restore to health the eye of the heart that has been so damaged by sin, whereby God may be seen or beheld. And one of the striking truths as you look at god's word about this is that beholding god's glory is what changes us inside and sanctifies us first corinthians 3 18 says we speaking of all believers under this new covenant who are in christ all with unveiled face and just a couple verses earlier verse 16 tells us that whenever one turns to the Lord in faith and repentance, the veil is removed. And what that unveiling does is allow us to behold the glory of God. And what that does is transform us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So God calls us to know Him as fully deeply, intimately as possible. And the better we know him, the more we will, if we truly know him, if we truly behold him, the more we will worship. If what we're learning about God is not developing in us and driving us to worship him more, then we're not growing in a true knowledge of him. Now, in this context, realize, and Paul lays this out really clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he puts, and there's a verse 5 in between these two, but he puts and pits these two thoughts against each other to show us that at all times, Satan is doing all he can to blind, and God is doing the shining of God's glory. So here's this spiritual war that's going on even now while we're each sitting here, even now while I'm preaching. The God of this world, the devil and all that he has done within this world are constantly doing everything they can to blind us. Or you might just think of not let us really see, particularly in the minds of unbelievers. That's why we can share the gospel, speak of the glories of Jesus Christ in the gospel, and there's nothing there with someone. But he's working even in believers to do all that he is allowed to by God to try to blind us, to keep us from beholding the glory. 
while God is shining it in our hearts so that we see the glory. And note, the glory is ultimately in the face of Jesus Christ himself. Because when we see the glory, the radiance, the splendor of God, then it transfixes us and it transforms us. So point number one is to be devoted to worship means you devote yourself to knowing and beholding God. Beholding the person of God, who he is, attribute after attribute, element of his nature after element of his nature, stunned and awed by every one, the longer you behold any of them, the greater and deeper and more beautiful and more powerful they become. Beholding the work of God, particularly in his Son. Ultimately from Genesis to Revelation, but particularly in the truths of his Son and what he has done to accomplish salvation for us and a way to be made right with God. And then third, to also behold the why of God, which is a question we often ask of him, especially when life isn't the way we want. But this is more in the sense of understanding there is a why behind what God is doing. And the big picture always is that we would, because the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, let me emphasize just very briefly that second point with a few quotes here from three different uh, preachers, teachers. One is just from J.D. Greer, the cross is the blazing center of the glory of God. Piper, the apex of the glory of God is the grace of God, and the apex of the grace of God is the slaughter of the Lamb of God. So true worship of God sees the immeasurable supremacy and worth and beauty and necessity of Jesus Christ and the gospel and seeks it over everything else. And Chambers reminds us, heaven is interested, fascinated, awed by the cross of Christ. All of hell is terribly afraid of it. And men, we more or less ignore its meaning. We certainly don't heighten it as we should. Matt Papa, in a book called Look and Live, uh, this is one of his central quotes and maybe the quote that gripped me the most in his book, but you'll hear it from him a number of times yet this morning. The call is this, make your life one unflinching gaze upon the glory of Christ. Do this and you will live. Don't do this, and you will die. You will die. You will tinker with toys and technology and all manner of counterfeit beauty until your life is wasted. So members of Faith Bible Church, devote yourself to so beholding the glory of God that it drives you to worship and worship, and worship, and worship him. As Acts 2 says, continually. Secondly, of our bees is to believe. To believe the truths about him that require great faith, especially when it doesn't look like those are the case, and to accept it, and to trust it, and to build your life upon it. 
Matt Papa again. Christianity is the hard, joyful journey of beholding Jesus by faith until the day you behold him by sight. One of the striking things that Jesus did when he died on the cross was to disband and actually destroy by tearing the temple curtain from top to bottom the traditional church temple place, geographic place, material building as being where God would meet with man and turned it instead into us and God's people being where the temple is. It's a concept we still struggle with. Many of us feel we're worshiping more here this morning right now than we are in our car, in our bathroom, in our workplace, wherever it might be. And Jesus really stressed this point with the Samaritan woman at the well. A number of things that are going on in that passage. We're going to hone in just to verse 23, where Jesus says to her, and this is before his death, so he's telling her the hour is coming and is now here. We're right on the cusp of it. When the true worshipers, those who are going to worship God according to his design, his will, his standards, will worship, number one, the Father. He will be the, their aim, their direction of their worship. Uh, we can come to church and we can worship our worship and we can worship our worship leader and we can worship our pastor and we can worship the Bible even without worshiping Christ. So the Father, the Godhead, first of all in spirit, meaning it's not just words and not just routine and rituals and ceremonies, but genuine and from the very deepest core of us. In Matthew 15, which is not on the slide, Jesus told the religious leaders they were hypocrites because they, they honored God with their words, but their hearts were far from Him. But also, not only in spirit, because all kinds of animus worship in spirit, but in truth, second critical element, that true worship is based upon scriptural truths and not our imagination, not our feelings, and not making God the way we want Him to be. And our words are honest and genuine when we say them. And here's why. For the Father is seeking, this is something He is seeking and desiring, is people that will worship Him because that is the highest and greatest response that human beings can give to God. Let's just pause here. Consider Jesus' words. And think about yourself. By his definition, are you a true worshiper? Or are you possibly a pretender? Are you possibly deceived? Are you possibly one of those people that God will say to in the last day, I never knew you. Oh, you spent a lot of time in church and a lot of time sounding Christian, but I never knew you. Is worship of God your first and strongest response to God? Are you truly worshiping God? As revealed in the Scripture, not according to what your favorite author says about Him, not according to your imagination, sometimes not even according to what our songs say, 
certainly on the radio. And have you come to know God through the only means of faith in His Son and in what Jesus Christ has done and accomplished and repentance from your sin? Are you worshiping Him truly in spirit? Are you worshiping Him in truth? And I would just urge you, just like the Samaritan woman that day at the well, that if God convicts you of this sin, that you confess it, come to Him in faith, acknowledging your error and desiring to follow Him in spirit and truth. And even as the woman at the well that day, be born again and become a true worshiper that the Father is seeking. Points three and four will cover a little bit faster, but don't take them too lightly. Third is to bow, to surrender, to submit oneself, to be humbled by the magnificence of God that we're allowed to know, to pay the homage rightly due to a being that is so superior to us. Many, many calls to bow down in the Word of God. Psalm 95, 6. Psalm 132, we could name many, many more. A couple of New Testament passages that also bring this to light, particularly emphasizing it's not just necessarily a bodily bowing down, though I think it can often include that. And we have lost that as a church, perhaps. But especially the posture of one's heart. So Hebrews 12, which unpacks the glories of the new covenant that are just exhilarating, finishes with this. Let us great be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that is so phenomenal. And the response that should evoke, that we offer to God acceptable worship by His standards. And that worship is filled with reverence and awe there's the same word as the acts 2 passage and here's why our god is a consuming fire to have such a deep profound reverence and awe of god that it buckles us into submission the old testament term for this is the fear of the lord which is caught in the new testament as well christopher asmus speaks of this says, seeing a ruling and reigning Christ who sits supreme over the worshiper's body, life, and world. Fourth, to bless, to give honor to the Lord. Not only coming to receive, which is often even our thought of coming to church, or our opening thought of each day, which we absolutely need. But also the fact that God wants us to give, and what He wants us to give is worship. Not because He needs it, but because it so pleases Him when we rightly see His glory. So both in 1 Chronicles 16 and then repeated in Psalm 29:2 are the words, ascribe, give, attribute, Assign to the Lord the glory, and notice the word, do, His name. It is not something added and extra that we're doing, 
but it is rightly deserved. It is a response that is absolutely necessary because it is due, it is required of those who come. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And while you're doing that, back to the bowing idea, tremble before Him, all the earth. Psalm 103 is one example of that. Blessing the Lord, not just casually, but with all that is within me. Just lifting up, bringing to Him, giving to Him the glory that He so rightly deserves and is due. Fifth, B. Hey, we're only two minutes behind so far. Great. It's a good Sunday. This is probably my weakest B, uh, which is the word B, uh, but I was tr trying to get at the totality of life. That it is to be wholehearted, whole-lifed, giving of oneself. That's what we're blessing him with is not just words, but ultimately all of ourselves. And probably most succinctly expressed in Romans 12, 1. And it might be helpful here to, to go take your eyes to the last word of this whole verse. What this is all explaining is what spiritual worship, what God-pleasing, honoring worship entails. So, Paul appeals by the mercies of God. In other words, he points us to the gospel and says, in light of the mercy God has shown you through Jesus Christ, his son, and everything that Romans 1 through 11 has unpacked for us that is stunning. And now he uses Old Testament imagery and language here in words like present and sacrifice and acceptable. But presenting the idea of bringing yourself to God as an expression of his worth. That he is worth Having all of you, your body, not a slain lamb that we now bring, that actually would be easy. But you, bring you. Bring your life, your time, your strength, all he's given you of resources. Bring it all to him. And as an expression of worship, offer it to him as a living sacrifice, as one who will go out and live sacrificially because of the worthiness of Christ to have a life fully devoted to him. This imagery that con conveys that worship in the new covenant, in spite of what Christ has done and accomplished, will actually call for even greater sacrificial worship on our part. He then goes on in Romans 12:1 to note that it is to be holy, a holy presentation. And the wording Paul used earlier in Romans in chapter 6 was, don't present your members of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So there's the worthiness of what has been done for you. And now present your members, every part of your life, to God as instruments, tools, vehicles, conduits, means for his righteousness then to be poured out and then your worship is to be or your presentation is to be acceptable to god by his standards so we might paraphrase this thought if this is helpful worship of a god who's been as massively merciful as he has been toward you and your sin 
means daily sacrificing your life as a way of offering back to him the glory he so rightly deserves. This is not earning your way back in any way toward your salvation. That is completely accomplished. And now because of that, you offer this worship of yourself. I try, I fail very much, but I try each day even before I climb out of bed to kneel, bow before the holy throne of God as I'm worshiping him and climax that with, now Lord, do as you please with me. Use me today, which somehow, in spite of my knuckleheadedness and sinfulness, use me for your glory. No more so on a Sunday than on a Monday or a Saturday. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16 takes this idea out even further. You'll see sacrifice in both of these verses. Through him, through Jesus, through the gospel and all that's been done, let us now continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So, not just Sunday mornings. Notice the adverb continually. All day long, all week long, all of the time. First thing in the morning. Offer God your sacrifice of the next 16 hours that you'll be awake, or 17 or 18. Set the tone for your day of being focused on worshiping Him. As you eat, worship. As you drive, worship. As you work, worship Him. Not you, not your work, not your company, not your product. Worship Him. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians 3, work heartily as for the Lord, realizing that whatever you're doing, you are doing because of Him and for Him and through Him. The world in the work world works for money and power and prestige and honor and self-gratification. But God's people work for one purpose, to please God. To say to him, these abilities you've given me are for you. They're for you. May they please you. May they honor you. Whenever you read or hear God's word, it should lead you to worship. Start every prayer all day long. The hundreds you may pray with worship. Come into his presence. As you relax, worship. As you play and recreate, worship God, not what you're recreating with. Even as you're going to sleep, end your day, worship. Paul again, 1 Corinthians 10. Whatever you're doing, he uses two simple activities, eating or drinking, but it is every activity of your day, changing a dirty diaper to doing whatever you do. Do all, do every aspect of it. None of it for yourself, none of it for the glory and attention and praise of this world. Do it for the glory of God and to the glory of God. And then back to Hebrews, two ways that these sacrifices are spelled out here to do good and to share what you have. So even as you seek to do good to your neighbor, do it not for self-gratification, but to glorify God. As you seek to be a generous giver that, that is pleasing to God, make it not for your good feeling, but for his glory and honor. All right. Lots more there because of time will 
let that one go and move on to number six, belong. This one is still not as strong either, but it's the idea now of everything else I've emphasized just worship is happening on your own individually. Here is the element, the unique element, that God is not only pleased and deserving and demanding of worship from each of his followers individually, but he also is pleased and deserves and is demanding of his followers gathering together as one unit, one body, and worshiping him. A whole community of Christ followers uniting together for the express purpose of amplifying our worship of God. So Peter in 1 Peter 2 talks about the fact that Christ, the stone over which, which men rejected and over which men stumbled, but in God's sight is chosen and precious. That stone is making each of us living stones, but not isolated, not just sitting out in a field. We're all being built together in a spiritual way as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. God uniquely dwells in His people when they gather in a way that is unique and different from even when they are apart god puts such a high value on community worship one of the few scenes he allows us to glimpse of heaven is a scene of a massive host in revelation 5 and 7 particularly a massive host of worshipers gathered around god to exalt him and to bow in worship should we be doing less on earth? I love the way Jonathan Edwards connects our earthly worship and heavenly worship. The church on earth is the same society with those saints who are praising God in heaven. There is not one church of Christ in heaven and another here upon earth. And then John Kostler, professor at Moody, Tease that out. This means that when the church gathers for worship, it engages in a heavenly activity. The worshiping church does not merely imitate what goes on in heaven, it participates in heaven's worship. Consequently, the worshiping church is part of a much larger congregation. What we do each Sunday morning has a huge imp implication and impact for everything else that we're doing. This is why we start every week here. It's a reset. It's a calling together. It's a building each other up to be worshipers. Piper says, the vitality and power of the church rises and falls with the experience of the glory of God in weekly worship. So I have a bunch of soapboxes about church attendance, and it's easier for me to yell at you than the body God has given me. It's not, but I can get out of town. But just a few thoughts about this. When you really comprehend what the, worship, the gathered church worshiping is to entail, one is it's so much more than singing. Please do not think Singing is when you are worshiping and all the other activity in church, you're doing something else. 
when the gathered saints pray together, it is to be centered around worship. When we study the Word, even as we're doing now, but in any other ways, all of that should be evoking worship. Even when we're fellowshipping together, it should not be primarily consumed by sports and weather and family and job and the news. It should be about exalting and blessing our God. What He has done in this past week, what are we are counting on for His glory in the coming week? Another soapbox. Don't make Sunday morning primarily about you. How you'll be blessed. How others will respond to you. It's not about you. Make it completely about God. Stephen Sharnock says, when we believe we ought to be satisfied rather than God glorified, we set God below ourselves. And imagine that he should submit his honor to our advantage. One more, I don't have it in my notes. Coming late. If we were invited to the White House, if we were invited to a fantastic event, if we were invited to the Olympics, whatever, like you wouldn't show up in the 5, 10, 15 minutes into the event. You'd be there early. You'd be soaking it all in, taking pictures. You'd be worshiping. All of it happening. But Sunday morning, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, church, uh, just get there for the preaching part or the singing part or... Yeah, like we're so much more casual about missing. And every moment of our worship together should be uh, absolutely crucial and important to us. Okay, lots, lots more. I, you may have thought we were going to do a whole message on the church worshiping, but I think our corporate worship flows out of our personal worship. Very quickly, I'm supposed to be done right now. Uh, thanks, Troy, for keeping the shirt, the rest of the things a little shorter just a, a few words about beware we could go a long time on this this sounds like we're ending on a negative thing but i just think undergirded in all of scripture are all these warnings and it starts in exodus 20 uh how do i have it structured yeah starts in exodus 20 with the first and foremost command that we are never ever allowed to have other gods idols things anything that we put before God in our life, more importantly in our life. God has no tolerance for that and he opens it right away and simply says, don't do it because I'm a jealous God. And later in Isaiah, I will not yield my glory to another, to anything else. So, just reminders, uh, we did this Chesterton, but from Spurgeon, our eyes will not naturally go upward to the Lord of themselves. They will incline to look downward and inward and anywhere but to the Lord. So this is the steering wheel that we have to just keep holding on the road and in the lane of worship so that we do not veer off into other things. Uh, I don't have this on a slide, but 1 John ends, that glorious letter ends with this short little phrase, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The last word of 1 John is idols gods keep yourselves from worshiping anything less than god himself 
And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So this is perhaps a bit of a corny example, but it kind of makes a point as well with all the sorts of things that can be idols, from people, ourselves, to other people, to relationships, to uh, activities that we do, to things we purchase, to whatever we give a lot of time to, to any kind of occupation or hobby, or all those things. But a simple example of a functional God is your phone. Think about this. You trust in it. You depend heavily on it. You love it. You're awed by all it can do. You commune with it, some of us more than with God. And you come to believe you can't live without it. Aren't those definitions of a God? Or an idol? So here's a test. Which gets more of your mental focus and attention on any given day? God or this world's latest gods who dwell in our phones named Apple, Google, Amazon, YouTube, Netflix, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and a thousand others. What our phones have done is take away, steal even more, challenge even more our ability to focus on God. The way Matt Papa puts it in his book is, what we really have is an ADD of the soul. We cannot focus on God. That's our real poverty, the greatest thing we lost at the fall. And he goes on to say, we need to attend to God's glory with all the full force of our focus. If I don't fight every day to fix my eyes on Jesus, my ADD soul will look to a million lesser things we close with so are you a true worshiper of god having come through faith in jesus christ and all the gospel tells us of what he has done and repentance of your sin you cannot cannot come to God any other way. And secondly, if you are a true worshiper that the Father has sought and saved, are you as devoted to worshiping Him as you should be, as He wants you to be, and most importantly, as He deserves to be worshiped? May the awe of God from Acts 2 come upon your soul and upon this church so deeply that it fills you with a passion and a zeal that will lead you to devote your whole being to beholding, believing, bowing, bringing, and belonging as your spiritual act of work, worship all because of Jesus Christ and the good news of what he has done. Father, we're so uh, appreciative of your patience with us and of your kind grace to explain in your word what it means and what it looks like to worship you. We're clueless otherwise, and we're worshipers of ourselves and all of creation otherwise. God made this distinguishing trait 
of this church, of our churches, be that we are worshipers of our God Almighty when all the rest of the world is worshiping anything and everything else. Continue, please, to devote us, our hearts to worship, teach us more how to worship, captivate us more with your glory that we would become truer and truer and more and more devoted worshipers of you. We love you and praise you and thank you. Through Jesus Christ, amen.